The series is called The Best Things in Life for Free, The Values That Guide Us to Greater Freedom. They seem like constraints. These values seem to constrain us, but they guide us to greater freedom, like that, that kite string that anchors and yet sets free. Today, the freedom of perseverance. Freedom of perseverance. In Paul Miller's book, The Praying Life, and that's what persevering is about, persevering in prayer. In Paul Miller's The Praying Life, he tells a story of a woman who is trying to improve her husband. Uh, sometimes husbands are trying to improve their wives. Sometimes wives are trying to improve their husbands, taking on each other's responsibility for change. And she's thinking, if he's going to change, if he's going to learn how to you know, take out the trash regularly, it's up to me. Any of us can adopt that kind of attitude. You, you have a friend, and she's upset. Well, if she's going to feel better, it's up to me. You see a policy. It's a, it's a, it's a wonky policy. Well, if it's, if it's going to get better, if it's going to improve, then it's up to me. You see a system or a country. <laughs> you hear people trying to say that if, if our country is going to improve, it's up to me. Now, sometimes we're called to take on responsibilities that are outside us but not as an excuse or a coping me mechanism to avoid dealing with ourselves. It's easier to deal with other people. We have an excuse. They don't cooperate. Well, I try. System's too big for me. I, all kinds of pushback. What about dealing with ourselves? When you run into the Sermon on the Mount, you realize it's so much easier dealing with other people's gaps than your own. We become experts in other people's sin. And we often use that as an excuse or a way to avoid or a coping mechanism from dealing with the gap between this impossible standard that Jesus sets and the standard to which we live up. So what are we supposed to do? When you, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you see what Jesus is, is, is offering to us and showing us that, that if you just think it, it's like you've done it. Who can live up to that? What do we do next? Well, the answer is ask, seek, knock. From, from the Word of God, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Hear God's Word this morning. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if a son asks him for bread will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? This is God's word. Let us pray. God, bless this word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. That is an astonishingly bold and seemingly wide-open invitation. But it's not a blank check. Obviously, we can't ask for all kinds of mischief that runs contrary to Scripture or to God's will. So what's he doing? Why is he giving us this, this big, bold carrot out there that entices us to prayer? Well, let me tell you a story that I think illustrates 
why Jesus is trying to get us to persevere in prayer, to ask and keep asking, to seek and keep seeking, to knock and keep knocking. There was, an, there was a group of people talking about the best position, physical position for prayer. Was it kneeling? Was it sitting? Was it lying prostrate? There was an electrician in the room, and he overheard this, and he kind of intruded on their conversation. He said, you know, the best position in prayer that I've found is hanging upside down from a telephone pole in the middle of a lightning storm. You know, when you're in that, when, when something has a hold of you like that, you often discover prayer. And sometimes when you discover prayer, the reverse is true. You discover what's got a hold of you. To persevere in prayer is to discover those things that have a hold on us, that are holding us back. And perseverance is like those constraints that actually guide us and set us free from ourselves. We're often our own worst enemy. And so persevering prayer can help us discover those places in us where we're living apart from God and apart from the design and apart from the freedom that we could have if we could see it if we persevered long enough to see what we're really looking for, if we persevere long enough to seek why we're being so driven, and if we persevere long enough to knock and find out what we really, really need, ask, seek, and knock. First, ask and keep asking. That's how, that's how this language is, is putting it. It's not just ask once, but it's ask and keep on asking. It's to persevere and ask him because in asking openly, we begin to discover what's ahead of us, what's drawing us, what's really the it. It says it will be given. What is it? When we ask openly and keep on asking, we persevere in prayer like that, we begin to discover what it is we really want, what's out there that we're really after. And is it a rock or is it bread? Is it dead or is it alive? Does it leave, lead to life or death? You know, Beth, uh, you know, 20, 22 years ago when she was pregnant with our triplets, um, people would ask and find out that she was having triplets. Or when, when, when she was driving them around in, in the little uh, aircraft carrier that, um, that, that, that we called a, a triplet stroller, people would say, they would ask her a question. They would say, were you on f- fertility drugs? And it was kind of an awkward and personal question. You know, I mean, I guess when you, know, you see triplets, you feel like you can ask that. It wasn't, didn't feel personal, but it was just kind of strange that everybody seemed to ask that. And so I said, well, why don't you just, um, why don't you just pretend you don't, don't, don't hear what they ask and see if they'll ask it again. And she started to do that, and she realized, no, they, they actually realize that it's a very personal question, and they wouldn't ask it again. It put every, made everybody feel uncomfortable. So she stopped doing that. But, but here's the point. See, what this illustrates is when we ask and keep on asking, we actually discover what it is that's really drawing us. What is that it? Like the old commercial, you know, for the, 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 you know, the credit card company that says go after your it or whatever your it. Do you know what it really is? When we ask and keep on asking, we start to discover. Whether it's a stone, whether it's leading to life or death, whether it's a a bread or a stone. You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus uses this contrast because that's Jesus' first temptation in the desert. 
Satan comes to him in the desert. Jesus is, is sent out by the Holy Spirit to, to be tested, to be tempted. And to see what he's made of, what's really in him, what's really driving him or drawing him. And Satan looks to these, these, these cobblestones in this riverbed. And if you look at it, you know, I looked at, at stones in um, Middle East to kind of look at some pictures of them. And, and they could be co- confused for a baguette, you know. If you look at a baguette, you look at a stone and, and you're hungry and you haven't been eaten for, for days upon days. Now, your imagination, it wouldn't take much imagination to begin to see sometimes... Sometimes I think we're looking for something, we're drawn by something, and we think it's going to nourish us, but it really doesn't. And so, 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 so Jesus is saying, look, asking will be given, but, but, but recognize. What parent would give someone who thinks they're asking for bread what they're asking for if it's actually a stone? You know, it was heartbreaking one time I was down in Haiti, and I saw on this basketball court in one of the poorest areas in really in the Western Hemisphere, I saw these discs and I, I didn't know what they were. And I asked our guide, what, what are these discs? And he said, those are clay discs and they're seasoned with salt so that when uh, a child is hungry and they don't have anything or they need to, to get them through the afternoon to get them to dinner, they can give them something that will satisfy their stomach. It won't nourish them, but it will get them through. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, when we're asking, we keep on asking, we discover what it really is, we can begin to see that what we're asking for isn't really going to nourish. Sometimes we think it will, like winning the lottery. You know, you drive down the highway and you see the billboard, and your mind, your imagination begins to go. You begin to think, oh, all the good things I would do. You know, Lord, if you give me, give me this, uh, these, these tens of millions of dollars, you know, I'll, I'll take 90% of it, and I'll, I'll put it in a foundation. I'll do all these wonderful things, and I'll just take maybe 10 or 15 million or so, and I'll go do You know, we begin to make these deals with ourselves, and we begin to think that, that it would solve all our problems. But, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take Scripture to tell you this. Even sociologists can tell you that it leads to disillusionment, chaos, isolation from your family, from your friends. Uh, The suicide rate of lottery winners is three times that of the average population. Is it leading to life? Is it a stone? And what, what good father would give us something that he knows is really a stone? And we think it's bread. And some of you can look back on something, you know, the old Garth Brooks uh, country western song, I Thank God for Unanswered Prayer. Well, it was an answer, actually. You can look back and see where God answered a prayer no, and you realize it was one of the best gifts you've ever received. You can see how having those circumstances cut short would have short-circuited some of the biggest lessons you've ever learned. You can see where that relationship didn't work out. And if it had, you might have been in a world of hurt. You can see that the job that you were looking for really wasn't the best and would have preempted you from a whole different path. And so, yeah, God sometimes answers wait. Sometimes he answers no. He knows the bread from the stone. Thomas Merton put it this way. He said, You know, you can succeed at the wrong thing, 
Make sure you're asking and seeking and knocking. You don't want to go climb the ladder of life only to get to the top, succeed at the wrong thing, find that that ladder is leaning against the wrong building. So ask and keep asking and discover whether your it is a bread or is it stone. Seek and keep on seeking. See, when we, when we learn what we really want, then we can begin to discover not just what's out in front of us drawing us, but what's driving us from behind. To seek and keep on seeking is to discover what's really driving and whether that motivation, motivations really matter. Whether what's motivating us is good for us. Is it a healthy drive? Are we running, are, are, are we being driven and fueled by something that that, 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 that is the possibility, something that we're for, or is it all negative? Is it all about what we're against? Is it all perhaps unfinished business? <laughs> when I think of unfinished business, I always think of that, that scene in Raising Arizona, that cult classic with Nicolas Cage and at the beginning of the movie. Uh, there's this, this crazy-looking, wild-eyed uh, mo- motorcyclist who comes skidding along, and he turns, and it the camera focuses in on his shoulder and he's got this, this, uh, this heart that's a broken heart tattoo and it says, Mama didn't love me. <laughs> so here's this guy whose whole life seems to be driven and defined by unfinished business of his past. You know, what we tend to do then is we tend to be driven by something that really is centered on ourselves, not something bigger than ourselves. We tend to be driven by that unfinished business and we begin to try to make life work for us and to have life fueled apart from God. I I also think of this this great scene from Chariots of Fire where Harold Abrams, who is competing for the 100-yard prize, uh, the medal round in the 1924 Olympics, Harold Abrams, who was Jewish, who who had a kind of a chip on his shoulder, who felt like the whole world was against him, and he had everything to prove to everyone. And if he could just win the 100-meter dash, then he would legitimize his existence. And you see, of course, the scene following his, 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 his winning this race, how disillusioned he is. And that was really driving him, what was really driving him, to justify himself was not good for him. I think a lot of the social justice we're seeing today is not the fruit of people's motivating drives that is the overflow from grace and generosity, but it's really driven by guilt. And when it's driven by guilt, it becomes unhinged from a bigger picture it becomes something that, that really is about me, to make me feel better, not to make things better, but actually becomes part of my religion. So much of, of social justice today seems to be driven almost to a level of fanaticism that, 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 that puts the own, that, that own person's value and worth and identity on the line of solving that problem. And there you see a significant conflict of interest. So what's Jesus' solution? He's saying, seek. 
go after it. Seek and keep on seeking. And even in those frustrating moments, we can begin to see whether what we're seeking is is something that's going to nourish us like a fish or whether it's something that's going to come back to bite us like a snake. Motivations matter. You know, you think you're going for the good, but when it's really all about your own salvation, if you have to solve this problem to solve you, the conflict of interest will come back to bite you and the frustration can lead you to see that your motives are not lined up with God's best or God's design. You know, what, what, what Jesus is saying here is that when the parent, when a parent knows the difference between a snake and a fish, when he's with, withholding the snake, it's kind of like in the moment, it's like that teacher that you don't like, but is really holding you to a standard and really holding you uh, to, to something that he knows or she knows you can achieve if you'll just if you'll just hang in there just persevere we don't like that teacher during the course but we sure love that teacher later on we realize that was the best teacher we ever had didn't like him during the time but boy did they do us a big favor in life now see that's often what god is about when you're seeking but sometimes you feel a little frustrated in realizing your goal Finally, he's progressing here. Jesus is saying, ask, right? It's just sort of a, a, a verbal thing. It's, a, it's an ascent. Seek, you're beginning to lean in. Knock. Now, you see the physical expression of just that personal engagement. To knock and keep on knocking. Because in that place of vulnerability where, you know, is this door going to open? In that place of vulnerability, we can discover what we really, really need. We begin to discover how our, all of our asking and seeking, is it really about us or is it about relationship? We can begin to recognize that a lot of our asking and seeking is really about a striving for independence and self-will and, and self-governance rather than what we really need, those constraints that we really need, we need to identify with God vulnerably and in relationship. You know, I, I love this little, uh, I wish I had read this on Father's Day. This would have been appropriate a few weeks ago, but it says how, how your relationship with your father changes over time. It says this, at four years old, uh, a son says, my daddy can do anything. Five years old, he says, uh, my dad knows a whole lot. Six years old. My dad is smarter than your dad. Eight years old. My dad doesn't know exactly everything. Ten years old. In the olden days when my dad grew up, things were sure different. Twelve years old. Oh, well, naturally, dad doesn't know anything about that. He's too old to remember his childhood. Fourteen years old. Don't pay any attention to my dad. He's so old-fashioned. Twenty-one years old. Him? My Lord, he is hopelessly out of date. Twenty-five-year-old? Dad knows a little bit about it, but then he should because he's been around so long. 30 years old, maybe we should ask Dad what he thinks. After all, he's had a lot of experience. 35 years old, I'm not doing a single thing until I talk to my dad, 40 years old. I wonder how Dad would have handled it. He was so wise and had a world of experience. 50 years old, I'd give anything if Dad were here now so I could talk this over with him. 
Too bad I didn't appreciate the counsel of his will. There is this need for us to be independent. And we all go through this where we, we feel like we're becoming better and bigger and our best version of ourselves by separating ourselves from all of the people that we feel depended upon and defined by. And then we realize that there's a greater, greater value and identity in relationship, especially when we're talking about a relationship with God. My kids have gotten me into uh, this, um, th this artist, Gregory Allen Isaacoff, who has written a song called The Stable Song. I think it's his signature song. He, he's been met with some success. He's concerned about how it might change him. And, uh, and he's realizing that he's kind of lost his muse. You know, your muse is that, that inspiration for creativity. And he's driven back to his roots. He goes back to uh, Appalachia, to his old Kentucky home. And, he, and he's telling this story. He says, remember when our songs were just like prayers, like gospel hymns you called in the air. Come down, come down, sweet reverence, unto my simple house and ring. Remember when our songs were just like prayers, like gospel hymns that you called in the air. Come down, come down, sweet reverence, unto my simple house and ring. goes on to tell the story about how sometimes it feels like these songs, this inspiration, this creativity, just, it just, it's just there. And other times it's just not. And he realizes, or he says in the chorus, he says, turn these diamonds, these, these diamonds that seem to drop from the sky, turn them back into coal. And he realizes what he needs to do is he needs to depend again. He needs to get back into a posture of trust. You know, to not, not to try to engineer and muscle it or strong arm it or, or engineer his circumstances, but this picture of knocking, this posture of vulnerability begins to connect him again to this source, this mysterious source of strength and wealth and identity. You see, a lot of times we... We, we look at prayers, this genie in a bottle. If we just rub the lantern just right, we're going to get exactly what we want. And God knows that ultimately, at some point in our lives, we're going to need something that this world simply cannot supply. What compassion is it for God to help us along to connect with Him where only he can satisfy. I remember uh, growing up when I, was, um, when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, and I was wrestling with the loss of, of my older brother and asking big questions. And I went to one of my, a guy who became my great mentor. And uh, he would not give me answers. He led me to find the presence of God and to be satisfied with nothing less. You know, in that 
and one of the most famous plays, uh, Hamlet is so frustrated with life's big questions, and he's looking at books, and somebody asks him, what are you reading? And he just says, words, words, words. He needed the presence. He needed something bigger. He needed a more personal answer, a personal connection that only comes from this posture of de dependence, this, this place of vulnerability that Jesus is inviting us to explore inviting us to have the courage to be vulnerable with God. See, even that physical act of knocking and keeping on knocking and letting go of the control, who is in charge of that door? Who's going to open that door? Are you knocking on that door with your worries? Are you knocking on that door during this pandemic with this, this mammoth lack of control that we have are you knocking with the big question about your own mortality and who's going to be with you in that last mile of life this posture of vulnerability leads us to a place where we can receive with open hands what normally we try to control with vice grips c.s lewis sums it up this way he says if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We find ourselves like fish out of water. We ask, we seek, we knock, we're looking, we're seeking, searching for something, looking for answers. And God is saying, trust me. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Discover what is really drawing you. Discover what's really motivating you. Discover what ultimately, even now, you really ultimately need. Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you for the ways that even in our frustration, you are able to deliver to us more than we can ask or imagine, as Paul said to the Ephesian church. Lord, we know that sometimes we have not because we ask not. We're not following the stream to the source. We, we plan our way, but we forget that you direct our steps. God, as we consider what it means to live freely, help us, Lord, to see the wisdom in your counsel, in Jesus' name, amen.